we don't really care if it's a thousand orthogonal layer ones or Ethereum only as a settlement layer and a thousand layer twos, like you're still going to need to move state data between those. Um, we just try to build the primitive that makes it as easy as possible for both of those. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research, brought to you by the Atom Accelerator. If you're a developer looking for a home in the industry, the Atom Economic Zone welcomes you. You're going to hear more about the Atom Accelerator a little bit later in the show. Today is July 17th, and we have a great interview lined up with Brian Pellegrino, the co-founder and CEO of Layer Zero Labs. And I also wanted to take a second to uh, spread a promo for the permissionless event that we'll be hosting in Austin, Texas. It is the largest DeFi and crypto native conference, bringing builders, researchers, and investors, and thought leaders all into one place in the heart of Austin, Texas. If you use code 0x30, you can get a 30% discount on your code, and we will see you on September 11th through 13th. If you do decide to come, be sure to hop in our DMs on Twitter, hit us up on Telegram, let us know, and let's grab a beer. But before we get into the interview, as always, we are joined by Ren and Effort Capital, two members from the BlockWorks research team, to discuss the latest market happenings. Effort, why don't I kick it over to you for your hot seat or cool throw to kick us off? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to start off with a hot seat today. I'm going to throw all alt EVM L1s and uh, proof of stake Ethereum side chains on the hot seat. So this past week, um, and I think I had them on the hot seat a couple of weeks ago, but Polygon officially announced what they're going to be doing with their token rebrand. Um, this is their second rebrand. So if you remember back in 2017, 2018, um, it was originally just called Matic Network. They rebranded to Polygon, but the token was still called Matic. Now on top of this whole like architecture revamp and uh, new token design, they're now going to rename their Matic token Paul, P-O-L, uh, after the Polygon brand. And what they're planning on doing is, uh, I think, rebundling the entire modular stack, uh, data availability, execution, you name it, under one asset. Um, they're increasing their token supply. So they kind of tried to reframe that they're, re that they're doing a one-to-one -one token swap from Matic to Pole. Uh, but they also kind of hid inside the, the T's and C's, the, the actual wording of their rebrand, that they're increasing their max supply from 10 billion to it now include a 1% inflation that's going to go towards paying validators and potentially like an ecosystem uh, incentivization fund. Uh, but this really just sounds like they're just a lot of ZK uh, buzzwords, a lot of like infrastructure buzzwords. Um, really, at the end of the day, everyone in this space just wants to see Polygon have legitimate usage. They have a lot of enterprise uh, partnerships, but I'd be lying if I said I've used Polygon to do anything over the past like year or two outside of Lens. Um, but on top of that, you also saw Cello uh, on their research uh, forums announce that they plan on migrating from their own sovereign EVM-based L1 to become now an L2 in the hopes of, I guess, joining this narrative of L2s being the next wave of, of ecosystem and on-chain adoption. Uh, but let's not act like anyone actually cares. There's like $100 million of TVL on Celo. The past 24 hours, they've gotten $200 worth of transaction fees. Um, if you haven't found product market fit as an, a sovereign L1, you're definitely not going to find product market fit as in L2s, where you're going to probably see hundreds of L2s um, kind of pop up over the next couple of years to try to catch this narrative. And overall, I think all these rebrands, all these like new architectures, try to realign themselves with Ethereum isn't going to change much at the end of the day. Again, we just want to see some on-chain applications that people actually want to use. Um, and we're kind of still in this like hype cycle of architecture or, or I'm sorry, of infrastructure uh, that I, I'm hoping is kind of dying down over the this next cycle. I want to uh, dive in on that last point you made on the CeeLo green chain. Um, you know, it is kind of interesting that 
they made this move from their own Alt L1 to an Ethereum based L2. This is kind of something that we talked about when ETH L2s were like still in their infancy and like starting to see like, okay, these might actually be interesting. There was this huge idea around, not necessarily a narrative, but more of just like people talking like, oh, one day all these L1s are going to end up as ETH L2s. And now we're seeing some of like the lower end ones make that transition, be like, you know what? doesn't make sense for us to try to run our validator network like let's let's just go be an ETH L2 and kind of just take things from there um, which is pretty interesting right because there's an interesting I, I don't I haven't really seen any research around this but the idea of using your own native token to incentivize validation of your alt L1 is this a cost to your to your network and it, it can be viewed as such and um, if you're an ETH L2, you know, like Arbitrum or Optimism, you don't have to incentivize the, the, like the sequencing of your chain. That's kind of just like this off-chain expense. Uh, so there's like a trade-off there. There is still an expense associated with that, but uh, certainly less than emitting you know, millions of dollars of your, of your own native token out. So a uh, pretty cool trade-off between the two things of, of the different costs there. And I, I think the real takeaway there for me is you know, there is this mindshare of uh, attention and value and use flowing back to ethereum this was like in the early days of the bear market everyone was like everything's going to consolidate around ethereum it's going to happen right now go um and obviously that didn't happen overnight uh but we are seeing some some true signs of, of that that narrative actually coming to life um now if that doesn't mean like alt chains are necessarily dead but you know like we've seen some action on solana uh, and other ecosystems are still bustling like the cosmos for example um so yeah just kind of interesting to actually see the the narrative of people and attention and mindshare and you know activity center back around ethereum yeah just to add to this i think coming from the cosmos ecosystem it's gonna be really interesting you're seeing them converge on the same path so a bunch of alt evml ones are now converging back to ethereum as like the home base to hopefully get liquidity from and the exact same thing is now happening with the cosmos ecosystem where replicated security you see Stride migrating from their own sovereign um, sovereign chain to now become a replicated secure chain on the Cosmos hub. You're seeing UMI and a couple other um, uh, Cosmos sovereign chains potentially joining the ranks and becoming a, a secured chain to the hub. One to offload validator costs, but also to get atom liquidity. Um, I think it's also kind of interesting because these L2s, I, I think the Ethereum community likes to kind of hand wave away the costs of running a sequencer. It's very easy to run a sequencer at little to no cost when centralized. The moment you start decentralized the sequencer, now you have to start incentivizing uh, a decentralized validator set. Sounds like an app chain to me. Uh, you also have to now, uh, like CeeLo, CeeLo Green Chain is also going to be leveraging EigenDA for data availability. Who's If you're uh, a, a restaked ETH uh, validator for Eigenlayer, now you have to go secure CeeLo or, or Celo uh, chain for to provide data availability, how is Celo going to pay for that? Probably by incentivizing Eigen DA ETH restakers. Again, sounds like more overhead. And it sounds like you're just getting, uh, it sounds like you're actually like getting rid of your sovereignty by giving, offloading other uh, parts of the modular stack to other chains. But there is a cost of doing so. And really at the end of the day, I really think everything in the uh, L2 space is just going to revert back to looking like a Cosmos app chain. Obviously, it's my personal like point of view from my, my biased lens, but I'm really not seeing a lot of differences here. I would like to make a formal proposal to the BlockWorks Research DAO to do some uh, digging around the cost of you know uh, being your own L1 and incentivizing security uh, through your validator set versus 
being an L2 and using a DA layer and having a sequencer and, and working towards decentralizing that, that'd be a really cool analysis. I agree. Yeah, that would be super cool, especially considering when you're running off a centralized sequencer, yes, you're paying rent to Ethereum, but you're not paying it out of your own native tokens treasury or like token allocation, I guess, but instead you're making the user pay for that L1 settlement cost. So that would be a, a super interesting report, but hate to break it to the effort. I think you're going to be wanting to put uh, all L1s and uh, other side chains in the, the hot seat for a while because we've got Avo, Mantle, we've got Base, we've got WorldCoin and CeeLo Green Chain now. We've got Paul. Like I feel like this is not going to stop, especially with uh, Arbitrum's kind of full stack initiative and as well as ZK stack. So hate to say it, I think you're you're going to be stuck in this camp for a while. <laughs> I will be. And we haven't even say, seen the 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 heat of the zk stuff pull, like really come to life yet. I think we're in the very very early innings of that. So, um, super excited once these chains actually have out of the box interoperability, which I know you you preach about all the time with IBC. Yeah, just briefly touching on um, Polygon. You know, they say that it's a marketing buzzword that POO is a hyper hyper productive token. And then you can use it to validate multiple chains and chains can offer multiple roles. I don't know what those multiple roles are, but you know, for example, it could be validating, sequencing, data availability, something. Um, but it does feel like that's becoming a trend and, and it really does feel like restaking is becoming inevitable, right? Not just on Ethereum using eigenlayer, but also uh, using other, like just other, uh, other chains. So like, it seems like there's like a set of concerns around restaking that people haven't really considered, like how many consensus or validator clients can an e-validator really like run at the same time if they're restaking with Eigenlayer? I feel like that's questions that people haven't asked. And just like how, you know, we come to terms with like centralized builders, right? And for example, in the crossing for the future with like Suave or Intense or whatever, whatever you believe in, um, it does feel like that there's, there's going to be these like massive entities that are building like all of the blocks and they're going to be centralized. And it does feel like we may be running into a future like this with sort of restaking or hyperproductive tokens where one like validator or like one like computer has to validate for like so many things at the same time. So I think that's just an interesting point to think about. Ren, you want to kick it off with your, uh, or not kick it off, but you want to share your hot seat or cool throne? Yeah, um, I got Ripple on the cool throne. Obviously, they contributed to a massive move in the overall crypto market uh, across last week. So basically what happened was that a judge ruled that XRP was is not a security. However, there are some caveats here. The sales to institutions of XRP does count as a security. However, the Ripple sales of XRP do not constitute an offer of investment contracts. And so an offer of investment contract is separate from a security. Those are two different things, right? Um, and prog programmatic sales on, for example, like a centralized exchange also do not count as a security because you don't know who you're selling to, whether it's like a protocol, the exchange or market maker, and you don't really know where your money is going to, right? Um, there's like a lot of caveats here. I think I think the general just that XRP itself is just a token, right? Uh, a token like isn't like anything a token is a token, but it really depends on how you sell that token, like what you offer to your investors, what type of marketing language are you promising returns that really makes you the security. And obviously, as we all know, like 
being a security is not that great of a thing because it means there are like a million different laws that you have to abide to, you have to register for exemptions, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think there are a few key winners here, right? One key winner is centralized exchanges because they are likely the place where protocols will come and offer those programmatic sales. And I would guess that if you're a protocol team, you would probably want to do your protocol sales to uh, verify like KYC user base rather than doing it on a DEX. But that's just my guess. For all we know, like these may happen on DEXs more than centralized exchanges. Um, similarly, protocols, obviously regulatory clarity is fantastic. I feel like a lot of devs now have a better idea of what they should do and what they shouldn't do when issuing a token. And one large group that I think is a really big winner here is that users, right? Um, if you don't want to sell to institutions because it means that you have to classify your token or at least like that specific contract as a security, then perhaps you want to do more public raises do like community fundraising efforts. You want to do more airdrops. You want to give users a way uh, to basically get more of the protocol tokens. And it feels like those are the three big buckets that have sort of won from this uh, judge ruling. And obviously Coinbase is one of the big winners, but I'll let Everett Capital talk a, talk a bit more about that. Coin, good, good stock honestly really good equity it was up 24 percent. not financial advice not financial advice i i was at one point uncomfortably long coin now i'm comfortably long coin uh after the move uh i mean yeah I, like brian and coinbase is unhinged right now after this news they immediately relisted xrp for trading uh obviously the market liked this news because it means that a lot of this potential securities are at least in the eyes of the sec are yes he's probably going to lose those future um lawsuits against Adam, Solana, Matic, et cetera. So, you know, I, I'm going to probably get this wrong, but I want to say like 30-ish to 45% of all of Coinbase's trade volume is, is from alts, non-Bitcoin non and ETH-related alts. Um, so obviously prior to the, uh, the the XRP news, there was a lot of concern around Coinbase's future revenue stream in the event that these assets are, are considered securities. But if XRP is not a security, there's no way like half of these or 99% of these assets are. Uh, so it's really good news for the market or, or around Coinbase. Um, you're gonna probably see their trade volumes, you know, sustain if not go higher in the event of a impending um, bull market. Um, but really good news for Coinbase as a whole. You're seeing uh, obviously like their competitors, mostly Binance, uh, get their, their hands slapped in the EU. You know, you're seeing different regulatory bodies throughout the EU and even in other parts of the world um, start kind of cracking down on Binance. You're seeing a lot of FUD on Binance right now, either right or wrong, not sure, because they're they're kind of not not fully transparent around their assets and around how their revenues are are, are shaking out, but they just laid off over a thousand employees over the weekend. But you know, currently you're seeing Coinbase's story turn more bullish while you're seeing their competitors kind of, uh, I guess, wither away a little bit, right in, in the the news of like the you know the Bitcoin ETF and all these major traditional financial institutions leveraging Coinbase for um, their their exchange surveillance agreements, uh, leveraging Coinbase as a custody provider. The the entire Coinbase narrative is finally coming to fruition. The the whole bet was that if you believe crypto is here to stay, then you have to imagine there's going to be certain like clear regulatory guidelines around crypto as an asset class, and you're starting to see that at least in the United States. And the more regulatory clarity we get the more bullish Coinbase is as, a, as an entity because 
they really played by the book for the past 12 plus years. People forget that like Coinbase has been around since like day one. Um, and if you're bullish on crypto, you have to inevitably be bullish on Coinbase. Um, luck, they got lucky that FTX blew up because FTX is making a really big like brand and name recognition in the United States. Uh, and they lucked out because of that. Because if not, if FTX was a legitimate company and you know Sam Bankman-Fried and those actors weren't being greedy, there was a good chance that FTX US was going to become the dominant exchange in the United States and the, the dominant like American crypto brand. But you know the the cards uh, fell where they lied, and and ultimately Coinbase is coming out ahead, and they're they have, they have a really good story ahead from here as long as they don't mess up. Whenever it comes to legal stuff like this, I am just so dumb. Like, I, I, it's this stuff goes so far over my head, unfortunately. So I, I definitely am a person when it comes to legal stuff, again, that I'm, I'm looking to other people for thoughts. And while all of CT was kind of, you know, hooting and hollering out of joy, the I got to give a shout out to the BlockWorks editorial team. They were like, all right, hold on. What does this actually mean? Um, and while there were some great things, it's also still like, okay, you know, we've, we won round one, but this is far from over. Uh, and one of the interesting things is Ripple didn't even win the suit for the reasons that they were suing. The judge kind of came out and was like, I don't agree with why you're saying you're not a security, but here's why you're probably not a security. Um, and there's a quote from uh, an article that Casey Wagner wrote, wrote that I want to read here. And so it's, this is a quote from... Uh, Joe Castelluccio, a partner at Mayor Brown and the leader of the firm's uh, fintech and digital assets group. So as one of the few successful challenges to the SEC in this area, the decision provides a window into additional structuring possibilities for token insurances and secondary market transactions. However, I don't think this decision deters the SEC or causes it to change its approach to the industry. So still expect the SEC to been you know keep continue on the way they've been on this warpath um it'll be interesting to see if they go after DeFi protocols uh you know this has to be kind of like an arrow to the knee for the sec but i i, I kind of agree like they've already made it their brand to go after crypto for better or for worse and like i don't think losing the first round is gonna kind of push them off the hill so it's just a bit of the insight from the other side of the uh, of the of the perspective here because you know all over crypto twitter it was we won we won we won and all over the charts it said we won we won we won as well so um kind of interesting and again like i don't i don't i don't follow i don't pretend to know the law so it's uh it's just interesting to see the other side of the of the wall here yeah all i know honestly i'm with you there dan i'm like i don't I don't try and act like I know the legal jargon, but I ain't short an XRP with a 10 foot pole. Like some people were trying to trying to play that game. And I, I don't know, you're just one headline away from just getting wrecked in either direction. So I'm going to steer clear of that market for a while. Yeah, they still have the retail attention, like, and which is coming back. I've got a very embarrassing text from my mother saying she wants to uh, get me to host a women's crypto group for the neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> so retail is coming back. And the answer to that text was no, for let the record state. But uh, one of my good buddy's dads uh, got wrecked in BlockFi, still still pursuing on is like, no, I get the crypto thing. He uh, He's always asking me about Ripple and Stellar. Those are the two always asking me. And I'm like... That's where retail attention is. I, I don't know how it always shifts there, but like that is what the this group is looking at. Yeah, you just reminded me of like uh, the FTX claims process. I've been seeing people all over Twitter saying like 
I, I made a claim, but I haven't gotten an email or anything telling me that I made the claim and I don't have any money still. So <laughs> we should, probably should have put them on the hot seat. But instead, actually, for my hot seat, I can jump into that. I've got Ave companies. Uh, they launched Go, I believe it was late last week, maybe over the weekend, or I, I can't actually recall. Dan will have officially pushed live on, on Saturday. Yeah. So what's that? The 15th? Yeah. Okay. So I've been live for two days. There's about two and a half million borrowed, I believe, at around one, one and a half percent. Reason we've kind of got them in the, the hot seat here is just the valuation. They're sitting at like a $1.2 million billion FDV versus Curve's $700 billion or sorry, million, 700 billion would be pretty large, um, as well as uh, yeah, uh, maker, Maker's uh, 950 million FDV or so. And then they also launched uh, Lens V2, or I don't know if it's actually launched quite yet officially, but plans for V2 rolled out earlier today, basically making NFTs composable with the ERC6551 standard under Lens V2. So basically specific NFTs can have their own Lens profiles. So the example they gave in the Twitter thread that they that they put out was that a crypto kitty could have its own lens profile, kind of creating its own value flow for the the actual NFT brand while um, kind of creating value for the content creator who owns the NFT themselves. And they also introduced open actions, which is basically the ability to interact with smart contracts via lens publications, which is actually pretty cool. Um, it opens the door for lens users to like mint NFTs, swap ERC 20s, participate in DAOs like directly via user interfaces on lens. Um, and some other improvements include some security upgrades, uh, the ability to transfer handles without actually transferring the entire profile. So they're kind of split up into two different NFTs now. I don't know. I just kind of got them on the hot seat because one, I think Ave is overvalued relative to its peers with better products. Um, and I also think that decentralized social is just generally really far out. Like it's just not a smooth experience today. Um, and I don't think that people are actually going to migrate from Twitter threads. Um, I don't know why I listed threads there. No one's actually using that right now either. But nonetheless, other major social media Web2 companies, I don't see that being replaced by Web3 for a significant amount of time. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, just going like to the Lens V2 take, like humans are inherently social creatures and we want to be social with other people that are also on the same platform and like threads. Great example. I just look, I haven't threaded anything in over a week and that's a centralized company backed by the largest social media platform in the world. Um, and where I'm going to stay on Twitter because that's where everyone that I interact with is on. And until there's like a real market pr product differentiator to go to lens, like here's why. And I I'm look, I'm super bullish crypto decentralization and like ownership of a social graph is not enough of a reason for me to move right now. It just isn't uh, like I, I have trouble seeing what the tangible benefits that of that are. And I'm like very, I'm already within this niche sector. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's really cool that they're trying to push this forward. I do think at one point decentralized social is probably going to be a, a good narrative in, in the coming years. I just think it's probably too early and just to put them on the hot seat. I, I agree. Like from a product perspective if you look at like maker so maker is obviously going through their whole end game uh revision or revamp uh they forked ave v3 to create spark protocol i know we uh i know zero x research uh interviewed sam uh as part of that who's who's kind of heading phoenix labs and building out spark protocol but when you look at like a maker DAO to ave comparison it's essentially the same product at this point uh maker DAO has a decentralized stable coin it's the most lindy stable coin in, in crypto Maker's been around since 2016. 
Um, they obviously, they now own their own lending platform, which is literally an Aave V3 fork. Uh, they're going to be able to uh, lend out DAI at like the cheapest rate possible across the market. Um, they're sitting at 900-ish billion, oh, 900 million FTV. Uh, and then you look at Aave saying at 1.2 billion FTV. They have Go. It's brand new. Um, yes, they have higher TVL. But if you look at like Maker uh, versus Aave, Maker has much more, um, I guess, brand awareness in the TradFi space. So they're being leveraged by um, community banks in the United States. They're lever being leveraged by SockGen in France, which is one of the largest um, institutional banks in, in the world, I believe. And at least in the EU is actually like tapping into dial liquidity. Uh, Maker sitting on like billion over a billion dollars in USDC that they're able to leverage to uh, deposit into T bills, and they're going to be, I think, profiting over a hundred million dollars, like profit over a hundred million dollars uh, on an annualized basis by sometime next year once all their RWA deals reach max debt ceiling. Um, it's just really hard to like stomach investing in Aave over Maker at this point because Maker's kind of building out and, and expanding uh, or doing like horizontal integration and Aave's kind of playing catch up. And for the record, Effort Capital thinks MKR will be a top 10 asset by market cap in the next few years. So just take everything he said with a grain of salt. And I'll also say I don't own any MKR. So like I don't own any right now. I probably should have because they're they're up like 100% or close to it since I, I was bull posting at the bottom. But um yeah, that was me LARPing. But I do seriously do think MKR is like a, a very undervalued DeFi asset relative to the space. Let's uh, let's get this on the record. So you said by 2025, is that Jan 1 or, or December 26th, 31st? Yeah, I'll, I'll say by the end of 2025, you're going to say MKR in the top 10. All right, so what's that? 24 months? No, 30 months. All right, mark it down. We'll be back in 30 months. Remember, I keep receipts. <laughs> okay perfect perfect um and yeah i agree with the takes around decentralized social i think that perfectly sums up into if, if zuck struggles to do it it's going to be hard for a, a decentralized startup to do it as well so when comparing uh go to die i tend to agree with your your points there and uh the lindy effect is is actually quite huge you really you really see that playing out in the market um you know die really has never been challenged Frax got fairly close, um, and then once the bear market hit, you saw like a true pullback. Nobody was holding Frax for its you know spot demand, if you will, or just to have the an asset that holds value or a stable value specifically. Um, well, people use that for Dai. Dai is in treasuries of of protocols. It's it it, it does and very much so have that effect. Uh, and when comparing it to Curve, there's a couple things that I think Curve just just nailed with its new model. Um, so like both Go and Dai, CRV USD is, uses like that peer to protocol model where you don't necessarily interact with your peer to peers, uh, which is a very outdated model at this point. What's more common is a peer to pool where I, you, know, you have suppliers who deposit assets that lenders come and borrow from the protocol, or excuse me, borrowers would borrow from the protocol. Um, and you just 
that's been a great model. That's scaled DeFi, really. I mean, Aave Compound really led the charge there. That's that's why DeFi is the way it is today. Um, but from a profitability standpoint, that's just not a great way to run a, a business. If you have to pay borrowers to bring assets to your protocol to fund new loans, um, you're you're just going to have to cut, cut, uh, cut that spread between what borrowers are paying in interest, and that ultimately flows back to lenders to incentivize them to bring their capital to the table. Where if you can play the role of the lender and have the stable coin that gets borrowed, you can capture the entire uh, amount of interest that flows in from the borrowers. And that is simply a more profitable model. You know, you saw DAI really be the first ones to take this and run with it. Um, and now you're seeing Aave migrate from into this peer-to-protocol model. And that's how Curve is launching its stable coin, uh, which is now up to about 100 million in borrow outstanding. And they have two key innovations on the peer-to-protocol model. So instead of just borrowing from like a, a plain vault or a dumb vault or you know whatever you want to call it, you're actually borrowing from an AMM curve, which is a very, very interesting uh, brand new innovation that we've seen in this space. And what this enables is instead of getting a hard liquidation at a certain point, uh, so let's say you borrowed $1,000 at 80% LTV, then um, once you hit that health factor of you know one or zero however you're calculating it and when you're up for liquidation you lose everything at that point um instead of going that model there's actually this collateral conversion model if you will so as your as the price of your collateral kind of falls down and, and decreases you're gradually moving from the volatile collateral asset into a stable collateral asset so you're always going to have um, more value than your borrow outstanding. So it's a brand new model. Um, it's been working great in production. There's been very, very few hard liquidations. I can only think of one, but I'm sure there's probably somewhere between one and five at this point. And um, so we're seeing a better environment for borrowers to go access capital. And another interesting thing here, which is some would argue is the more the larger innovation is a dynamic interest rate curve that updates based on market conditions, without user intervention. And what this leads to is less governance. And that is always a net positive when you can have a safe and secure model that doesn't need to be updated with user interventions. Like ultimately that is what we're trying to build in DeFi is just autonomous financial applications. Uh, and this is actually pushing that direction. So again, two massive innovations um, and more a quick little intro on the, the dynamic interest rate model is, the two key ingredients into this model are the current price of CRV USD, the stablecoin, um, and the amount of debt in the system. And basically, based on how those values shift, the interest rates that users are borrowing at will uh, kind of kind of shift the the rates that users are paying. So we've seen these really cool innovations, and you know they want to start working in RWAs over the long run. You're going to see them work in uh, curve LP positions. So again, I just think that there's more interesting models that we've seen and kind of Ave came out with this um, not bland model but like one that already exists there isn't much innovation here but at the end of the day like it is a more profitable model for Ave and it is the right thing to do we got a comment on a youtube video last week i think it was someone asking why are dan and sam smiling ear to ear when lucas says there needs to be a curve on solana it's exactly that you can just hear the guy's passion he's been talking about bringing curve over to solana for like six months now so if you ever hear that happening that was definitely dan's dan's doing oh what an excellent comment i i didn't even see that one that's incredible um yeah no, i have no idea if that's happening but if you're a developer in the rust ecosystem hit me up because i want to make that happen just briefly touching um on lens like 
I'm not a consumer founder, but I feel like most social apps have taken off either a, they found their own like very specific niche that caters to the user base and then grown from there or B they've introduced a new content type, right? For example, short form videos of TikTok, um, like be real and like how you can take it with like two different cameras. I don't know what the kids use these days. Um, but like, it's always been sort of like enabled by like a new content type that a lot of like young Gen Z's find super cool and then just like blows up from there. So yeah, same thing as you guys. I'm not that bullish, that's V2. And then similar from like evaluation perspective between Ave Curve and Maker, uh, I feel like out of all of those, yeah, Ave doesn't deserve to be like at the valuation at where it's at. And I, I, I low-key agree with Effort Capital here in terms of Maker potentially becoming like a top 10 asset. Maybe not by like end of 2025 so soon, but maybe like five years down the road. Just because overall, I feel like in the next five or 10 years, RWAs are going to be a huge component of crypto and DeFi. I, I wouldn't be too surprised if 10 years down the road, more than like 50% of TVL in crypto is for RWAs or... If I want to go like super bootcase, like if you take crypto's market cap, like 50% of that would be like RWAs. So like crypto's market cap is 1 trillion today and like 500 billion of like 500 billion worth of RWAs will exist on chain in some form. And I think Maker is in a fantastic position to sort of capture that, right? They have like all of these teams working on like due diligence. They have all of these existing frameworks built out they have like insane financial like models built up by stake finance steakhouse no steakhouse um and like it seems that they've gotten that down you know they work with like block tower various other hedge funds sock gen for all of like those real world assets like generation or, or origination and I, I can't think of any other protocol that's coming close to what maker is doing in terms of rwas right now yeah at the end of the day like the on a long-term basis the the way it's actually we're, we're setting up ourselves. I think one of the reasons why DeFi is catching a bid lately, and this is I think maybe a personal take, but in an increased uh, interest rate environment that we're at right now, and in, in, uh, at least in the real world, with T bills yielding like five and a half percent, like the risk-free rate is like high right now. It's a high hurdle rate, and borrowing capital in like traditional financial institutions is extremely tight right now. There's you're seeing like credit crunches happen. Obviously, the borrow rates are high right now. How DeFi wins is offering a lower borrowing cost than on than traditional financial institutions. That is literally how it wins. And right now, this is like the exact opportunity for DeFi to outcompete TradFi. And it, once we get a really good regulate, uh, regulatory framework in the United States, you're already seeing like Block Tower Capital and some of the crypto native institutions start tapping into like cheap on-chain liquidity to then arb that price difference somehow by leveraging the, the on-chain liquidity and bringing it to the real world. Like Maker is the on-chain to off-chain bridge today. And you're seeing Aave and like other real-world asset protocols starting to kind of, I guess, converge on this concept. But Maker's so far ahead that they are going to, in my opinion, they're they're likely going to win this race. I think one of the issue concerns is because they're trying to go to this whole endgame model, uh, Maker was such like a steady and like you know what you got from Maker prior to this whole endgame proposal. Now they're trying to do a bunch of fancy shit that maybe can deter some more conservative traditional financial institutions start tapping into Maker liquidity. But like if their endgame uh, thesis wins out and their whole revamp works out, um, I, I think you could see them like just gain a lot of uh, real world asset exposure. And 
just like Curve kind of has their own ecosystem with like Curve, Frax, Convex. Like you're right now, I think the closest protocol tied to MakerDAO is probably Centrifuge, which does like a lot of real world asset loan originations by tapping into to make a liquidity in some form or fashion. Like Block Tower uses both Maker and Centrifuge to do some of their real world asset uh, dealings. But you're going to start seeing a bunch of real world asset protocols try to tap into like Dai liquidity through like a D3M module and borrow Dai at like a cheaper rate than the than traditional finance can can offer. Um, and you're going to I do think you're going to see like trillions in AUM from DeFi, mostly on the back of MakerDAO, like over the next like decade, probably Super Bowl like thesis. But um, Ultimately, like that, that's really what DeFi is offering is, is offering cheaper cost of capital than traditional finance. Yeah. And I know, like, I agree the, the end game transition will be super interesting to watch. And you'd have to think like if, if a protocol can effectively use its token, it has a leg up over protocols that do not use their token. I, I struggle to think that won't be the case. Um, and so going back to the three we just compared, Aave has a, a token model used to its advantage. Maker's working on implementing one. And then Aave doesn't. I don't know. Another thing to think about. But uh, I think it's a good time to send it over to our interview with Layer Zero. But before we do that, I want to give a shout out to the Atom Accelerator. They are doing a great job getting builders into the Atom economic zone and building out the Cosmos ecosystem. They have these they have these great tools that just come out of the box and they have uh, IBC interoperability that allows chains to communicate with each other uh, without having to bring in this external system. They have uh, interchain accounts that al allow the chains to actually interact with other applications on different chains. Uh, they have duality coming to the ecosystem, kind of setting a new standard for value accrual as it pertains to the Cosmos hub and interchain security. You know, Stride's also a consumer here, and they're really pushing forward the advancement of liquid staking tokens. Um, and then, of course, you have native USD coming through Noble. So we're about to soon have a very vibrant DeFi ecosystem. It's going to be a very fun time to build in the Cosmos ecosystem. If you're looking to get something started, uh, definitely be sure to click the link in the description that will take you to the Atom Accelerator homepage. Uh, they're giving grants on a rolling monthly basis that ranging from $10,000 to $1 million. So be sure to check them out. Again, if you're a builder, that's really who the ecosystem needs and is looking for uh, and is looking to expand the power of the Atom economic zone and the use of Atom as money. So again, put the link in the description. Be sure to check them out. Now onto the interview with Brian Pellegrino from Layer Zero. All right, everyone. Today we are joined by Brian Pellegrino, the co-founder and CEO of Layer Zero Labs. Brian, thanks a ton for joining us today. We have a pretty exciting conversation on the docket regarding all things Layer Zero uh, and also Stargate, one of the exciting applications you guys have been working on. Um, so I kind of want to start the conversation off going through, uh, you know, Layer Zero and some of the cool things going on there. So you know, one major security unlock of Layer Zero is this Oracle and Relayer design. And I kind of want to dive deep into this, but uh, if we could just start with doing like a, you know, just a brief overview of kind of how this model works, I think that'd be a healthy starting point. Most models prior, and that was sort of what led us to, to creating this, is that uh, most models prior were basically you're going to delegate your security to some third party. So you would have whatever, some, you know, insert any bridge provider here or like messaging protocol um, and you, the application, just say, I sort of trust them with everything. Transaction is going to happen here they'll tell me if it's true or not, and they'll kind of report out on the other side. Um, and that's that's fine for like small applications. I think there are a lot of small applications who are willing to just completely delegate trust like that. Uh, but for larger applications, it becomes very difficult. And one of the 
questions we had to continuously ask ourselves is like, okay, you know, how does this scale beyond, you know, hundred million dollars, a billion dollars, but how do you have a system that the largest DeFi protocols in the world dealing with tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, um, the stable coins of the world, the, uh, you know, eventual possibly TradFi system, like how does all of this stuff resolve around one system? It was like very clear that uh, everybody's not just going to to offload their security to some random third party, how, however secure that third party may be. Um, and so the entire thesis of the layer zero structure was basically uh, you needed to create a system that was flexible enough to service a bunch of groups. So again, if you have this third party, the third party basically only gives you a single configuration, which means if you're a tiny NFT project, like doesn't, you know, dealing with very low value things, you're an extremely, extremely, um, you know, you're Aave dealing with like hundred million dollar liquidations. Like the Delta there is massive and having them both subscribe to like a single structure just doesn't make sense for either. Um, so the whole principle of this was allowing this sort of like modular security. So we've seen, uh, you know, Chainlink is in there. Um, ZK Light Client by Polyhedra just got in there. Like we're starting to see more and more groups come in where there is a really robust set of options uh, that any application basically gets to subscribe to. Um, so there's a much more flexible security stack. And so there's also this, uh, the like obviously to kickstart this, you know, kind of had to push out these two default options for both the Oracle and the Relayer. Um, is Stargate still using that? And like what percentage of, of users of Layer Zero have kind of opted into building their own models? Yeah, yeah. So one thing that we've found uh, is actually that running the Oracle component, uh, which is just security, is like it's it's pretty easy. It's pretty straightforward. There's a lot of groups who, who could do that. Running the relayer is like incredibly, incredibly difficult. Uh, whereas the relayer is basically just an Oracle and execution tied together, right? It really does security, but it also does execution. And execution is really, really, really difficult. Like, um, you know, we have to deal with um, wallets on 35 main nets, 45 test nets. You're quoting constantly in all N squared directions in terms of how to price gas in both ways so that the user has a fully abstracted experience. You're keeping those wallets balanced. We're doing like 40 billion RPC calls per month right now. Um, so it's like, it is like, no joke in terms of like scale of operation. Uh, and so that unsurprisingly, people have been like, that's pretty hard to run. And so, uh, whereas in the beginning, we're like, yeah, listen, anybody can do that. Um, so we're going to be rolling out some some changes in, uh, in the coming months for, for how some of this stuff works and just make it so, so, so much easier for people to do. Uh, so it will look a lot different. Uh, right now, uh, there are probably four groups. So we just released Essence, which makes like the Oracle, the security side much easier. Uh, there are like four large applications and a bunch of uh, node kind of your node infra providers, kind of like classic service providers, um, who all are starting to build on this. So uh, you'll see a landscape of probably a wait list of about 50 people right now. 10 will probably roll out kind of earlier. So it will start to expand pretty rapidly. Um, and each of those have their own like clusters of nodes and own structure. Um, but yeah, so, so, so far on the relayer side, it's been, it's been pretty slow, but that, that will change for sure. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's uh, a tall order to just be ripping 40 billion RPC calls <laughs> in a short time frame like that. But yeah. uh, I'm just curious that like the, so you, you know, you mentioned like the the broad range of needs for the the apps themselves, right? Like uh, ranging from Aave to an, a small NFT project. Uh, which applications, or, like which, which end of the spectrum has been more in demand coming to layer zero? Be like, hey, like, you know, we need to build like a super large robust system or a bunch of people coming in. It's like, hey, we just want to do these smaller type projects. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a pretty broad mix uh, in terms of like actual contracts. So obviously, layer zero is permissionless, right? So, you know, we probably have 
I probably have like 600 ongoing chats or something, but there's like uh, 10,000 contracts deployed on mainnet now, uh, somewhere on the order of that. And so like a huge number of teams have just come and deployed and like never spoke to us. Um, uh, I would say actually the majority of teams never speak to us. They just go read the docs, deploy themselves. Uh, of the traffic, I mean, we look at all of the traffic, but the traffic that's like easy to identify, uh, it's probably like 70%. So yeah, probably about 70% value transfer. Um, so, you know, your typical, your bridges, your lending protocols, your whatever, pure, pure DeFi, mostly moving assets. It's going to be like the Gurley testnet bridge, the Aptos bridge, bringing assets into Phantom, all that stuff. Um, Stargate, of course. Um, the second largest application in the network actually is, um, is uh, DeFi Kingdom. So it's like NFT uh, gaming related basically with uh, item bridge. Um, so that's the second overall, but still about 70% overall is value transfer. Um, and inbound is like 50% gaming and NFTs um, in terms of like actual inbound interest, but most of those haven't gone to market yet and that hasn't translated into messaging volume. So I think that will happen over time for sure. Interesting. That's cool that uh, gaming applications are super interested in, in layer zero technology. I did not know that. Um, in terms of, tons, like, tons. yeah, yeah, that's cool because that's kind of in the promise, right? You know, interoperability amongst games, so that that does make sense. But shifting gears a little bit, I feel like every ecosystem kind of is looking to establish their own, uh, I guess, bridging or cross messaging, you know, communication platform. So you got like IBC for Cosmos, you got subnets uh, for in, in Avalanche and then shared provers for ZK rollups. Like what exactly is the primary difference between layer zero and uh, an IBC, let's say, considering it's it's often touted as like the most secure bridging tech? Yeah, I mean, I, IBC is just like clients, right? IBC is like very, very interesting. It's just basically... Um, you have a you have a bunch of chains, and in order to move state data between them, you're going to basically run an on-chain like client. So you're going to send every single block header from one chain to the other, um, and then when you have this sort of like list of stacked block headers, um, then you know you can just take a proof, an arbitrary proof, and like okay, walk it back to the root and prove that it's like included in that set. So um, it's cool. It's like a, a um, like we we like the model in general. Uh, it's incredibly. Uh, expensive, right? Like if you want to send every single block header from a, a Tendermint chain to Ethereum, like you would not only like fill up all of the blocks, but you'd spend like a hundred million dollars a day to do it. There's just like no world that you're doing that. Um, so like that, that is the main, right? There's a bunch of different ways you can do the ZK, same stuff. Like again, um, uh, Polyhedra is like probably the leading, they, they are by, in, in terms of messaging volume now, they're the number one most used uh, ZK messaging like client in the world. Um, and they, they're, integrated rather than like trying to build their own channels integrated within layer zero so the applications can select them like layer zero people think because the way you think about most bridges the way you think about most of this stuff in the past is like the bridge is the security model right you choose x or y or z like that is the security model you're choosing that's not what layer zero is layer zero is like the the protocol right it's a framework and any like any existing system can just fit in the middle ibc could run over layer zero incredibly easily this uh, Polyhedra ZK Litecoin could have been some competitive bridge. It could have been any, anything like that. Instead, they chose to build inside of layer zero. And now they have like 30x the volume in a month that the next sort of like ZK bridge has done a lifetime, right? Um, so like the whole point is like, Layer zero has distribution. Uh, we're not trying to to solve the validation layer. Like the, the like 
that's bigger. That's like a extremely like um, progressive field. There's a bunch of interesting trade-offs there. All of that can live within the system. And so, um, yeah, I mean, the main trade-off is, is that, right? Like if you choose IBC, it's great. It's going to be you know fast and have its own security assumption sort of living within the cosmos. But the problem is when you try to go anywhere else, uh, you now have to use an entirely different system. Like how do you go to Ethereum? How do you go to, to X or Y or Z, right? And there's all of these different trade-offs. Um, what Layer Zero gives you, which is really nice, is just like unified semantics, right? Like you can use IBC there and X here and Y there all within Layer Zero while having the exact same interface, the exact same semantics. All devs only need to have like one structure for how to send data and receive data. Everything else is just handled on the back end. Um, so that is like really, I would say the main difference is like Layer Zero is not necessarily trying to solve what IBC does. IBC has the as like the transport layer effectively, right? Uh, that that sort of validation uh, methodology can just live within layer zero. So one of the things you mentioned there is, you know, you're not really trying to solve this like validation, uh, this the idea of, of that. And so what does the future of the, like of layer zero really look like? I mean, hence the name, right? It kind of wants to live at that base, ba that base layer, but you see other bridges or messaging solutions um, kind of moving towards this, like, like, like an L2 for Synapse or an independent proof of stake chain, like uh, maybe Axelar or Wormhole. Um, but then you also see like Circle kind of launching there. Not, obviously not a layer zero solution, but it's like, again, something that's more abstracted away. Uh, how do you kind of see the dynamics playing between those two things? And do you, eventually see like an LZ chain type thing or always being this, this sub layer? No, definitely always being so like, I, I feel like people are just recycling the same mistakes that people have been making for like seven years now. Right. Um, that doesn't, like, that's, it's, it's, that doesn't sound like crypto at all. No way. Yeah, it's, it's kind of insane to me. Um, so like the whole reason we built layers here in this method is like, like you're just not going to have one single chain that can secure a hundred billion dollars. Like it's really great way to sell a token and be like, listen, all the value will flow through this chain. So like, of course we're going to have a hundred billion dollars of security within this little external construct because like we're securing everything. So this will be worth so much. Um, but like how many models of that have we seen? Probably 30 different models. And I don't think a single one of them has ever scaled past like a billion dollars of crypto economic security. Um, like it's not even remotely close to the order of, of what needs to be secured. And that's like in the current set of where the space is, let alone like five years out. Effectively, this is roll your own bridge. We initially spent a ton of time with them as, as they were developing this. Like, um, how many people need to roll their own bridge and get that and get hacked before people like stop trying to roll their own bridge, right? Like look at the Axie Ronin hack, look at the Harmony hack, look at like all of the native bridges that have got hacked. And it's like, this might not be your core competency. Like that's okay, right? Like you're meant to build like a chain or an, an application or like whatever, like you don't need to roll every part of the stack yourself. Um, and so again, I, I, I do think the more people that go that way, uh, the, the worse it's going to end up. I, I think we will continue to see large hacks as, as we saw multiple in the last uh, last couple of weeks here already again. Um, and, and people just seem to keep uh, keep going in circles here, but we'll, we'll see what happens. No, fair take completely there. And I want to get your take on just kind of like why this all matters. So, you know, I, obviously I would assume you're more built into the, like the modular thesis than something like the high throughput Solana type thesis where, you know, one single shard, that's all we're going to need. Um, and, you know, you, you just mentioned that point around, like, maybe it's not the best idea for you to build outside of your core competency and like build every inch of the stack. So I'm curious, like, how do you see the future of the industry evolving when it comes to actual blockchain infrastructure and architecture? 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, on the layer zero side, we've tried to be like as agnostic as humanly possible. Ultimately, like for us, it doesn't like we equate uh, again, I equate the problem myself, like how I, how I think about layer zero is like go back in time pre-internet and you have just random isolated like execution environments. You got DARPA, you got Stanford, you got all these university groups, like you have some data that you want to do some computation on. Like I've got to fly to Stanford and like run it on the computer. Uh, we invent this cool stack for moving state data around uh, the internet. We got TCP IP, Ethernet, we run cable, we do all this other stuff. Um, and like, great, now we have the internet. That's how we're talking now. That's how we have all of these things. And like the base unit, that is a package. Just some compute here, some compute here with like an array of bytes. That's it. Do Create this array of bytes, send it over and like do something with the array of bytes. And like that is the internet effectively. Um, and so now we're moving to this structure where like, great, blockchains, cool. Like isolated execution environments that are that are that have strong trade-offs. So like some of them are, are very uh, good at throughput. Some of them are very good at storage. Some of them are very secure. Uh, no way to move state data between them, right? Layer zero is literally arbitrary contract invocation with a bytes array. That's it. Do some compute here, take the bytes, move the bytes, do some compute there. Um, and like that itself is massively valuable. Like 99% of all compute in the world still happens on a local computer, but like the internet is still the internet. So for us, like we, all we see is it's the same problem. Like we don't really care if it's a thousand orthogonal layer ones or Ethereum only as a settlement layer and a thousand layer twos, like you're still going to need to move state data between those. Um, we just try to build the primitive that makes it as easy as possible for both of those. So we have like no thesis as a company as to like what is more likely. One thing that has been super surprising to me uh, has been that like, I thought the most used pathways by far would be uh, layer twos coming back to layer ones. Cause like, all right, you're going from L1 to L2. Um, you're going to use maybe the native bridge of Arbitrum Optimism. It's free, it's built in. Like, okay, great, I use that. But I might not want to wait seven days to come back. So maybe I'll pay some premium to like come back faster, right? There's like something that I'm willing to to basically assume for that. And so I thought L2 to L1 would be by far the most used pathway, not even close. Uh, Arbitrum and Optimism are our most used nodes by far, but their most used counter nodes or like uh, connections are to each other actually. So it's like once people have made this decision to go from layer one, so go from like layer one land to like cheap low fee layer two land, they treat them largely as fungible. They want to jump around and do whatever they can between them that's interesting. Um, they don't want to have to go back and pay an L1 fee. So like, if you're on Arbitrum and you want to go do an application on Optimism or Base or Linear, like all the L2s that are coming up, like there isn't a world that you want to wait seven days to then go up and do that. And so like that uh, L2 thesis, a lot of people early on were like, is, is the L2 thesis going to be terrible for layer zero? Like it's been an incredible boon for us to see uh, the L2s taking off. So um, no, I would say we don't have like super strong opinions. I think even the most single, like, even the largest maxis of their own ecosystem. So like Anatoly, Vitalik, et cetera. Neither of them are like, everything is going to live here. Uh, both of them are reasonably convinced that there'll be at least some. So, uh, yeah. Okay, that's super interesting to think that uh, the connection between Arbitrum and Optimism is so huge. Uh, and is, is I'm assuming most of that activity is done through Stargate? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Layer Zero as a whole probably like 30, 30%, 35% of overall volume is Stargate. So this is a bunch of different applications who go across that pathway. For that specific pathway, I'm not I'm not sure what the breakdown is, but layers as a whole is, is 30, 35%, which has come down like in 
probably like in November, somewhere September, November timeframe, that, that number was like closer to like 80%, right? So you've actually yeah. seen a bunch of other apps like meaningfully come online, which has been interesting. Okay, that's that's a fantastic uh, just proof of you know what else is coming online. Is is that thirty five percent still the largest single application? Yeah, largest single okay. application by far. That's pretty good, honestly. If you break down like activity on you know even something like Ethereum, it, you probably get something. I would guess if you like you know measured by let's say transactions to a certain address, somewhere around ten or eleven percent uh, as the leading application. So that's that's actually quite impressive for just one year, uh, a little over one year now. So uh, pretty interesting there and. You know, I think one of the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about Stargate is, okay, well, there's an obvious cyber attempt going on here. I mean, just simply pulling up the DeFi Llama dashboard. Um, I think last time I looked, it was like 200,000 transactions in the last 24 hours for Stargate. ZK Sync, again, another potential airdrop farming activity. That was number two at about 30,000. I think the other 16 or so bridges combined for maybe 10 or 12,000. So how can you meaningfully measure the amount of cyber activity or like how much organic use do you think is truly occurring right now? Yeah, so... I think it's hard. I actually got in trouble for like trying to like a bunch of people started attacking me on Twitter for like trying to back into this on Twitter. So like I like to do reason like random thought exercises of like, okay, um, Stargate specifically, let's try to measure like Stargate civil activity. Like what do you think, what do you think the average size is of a civil transfer? My guess would be somewhere between 10 and a hundred dollars. Yeah, sure. So I, I did this exact math. So Stargate average transfer size right now is $455. Um, every other bridge, if you look at every normal bridge of like the next X, uh, they average out to about 800 and $845, $845, some, somewhere around there. So like uh, Stargate is roughly half, let's say a little, a little bit more than, than half of that. Um, so then you back into like, okay, if you take, um, you know, let's, let's say a hundred dollars. Uh, I think the math was if it's a hundred dollars, um, and, uh, so if Sybil is a hundred and organic is 855 or whatever the other bridges are, how much volume would be Sybil? Uh, and it was something like 54% or something would be Sybil. Um, and so like, that's one metric. Everyone's like, that's insane. Like clearly it's infinitely higher than that. And I was like, okay, so like, what is the number is like, is the Sybil average Sybil transfer, like larger than organic transfer on other bridges? Like, just give me a number and you can like, Back in, it's just math. It's not like overly hard. Um, so there's a bunch of ways to like try to back into this. Um, I don't spend too much time thinking about it. Ultimately, it's something that's like outside of my control. And so effectively, uh, you know, what I look at is like right now, if 98% of all volume was Sybil, like it would still be the most used bridge in the world by like a factor of like four. So like, you know, who really cares? It's like build the thing with maximum utility and like let everything else sort itself out. So um, like, yeah, I, I, I don't spend a bunch of time trying to be like, it's exactly this or like, here's how I classify volume versus others. It's just like loose numbers. It's just like what, you know, what is actually uh, meaningful, right? You don't want to get like lost in the noise. Um, and so I try to just benchmark like roughly uh, where do we think the world is? Because what I care about is measuring like layer zero adoption as a whole. Um, but, but yeah, I think there's, there's a couple different frameworks you could use for like trying to back into what numbers make sense. I like that mindset. I feel like there's no sense in trying to figure it out anyways. It's permissionless. Anyone's going to use it if they can. So might as well just <laughs> forget about it and uh, know yeah. that you're still putting in good work. But uh, you did yep. me you mentioned CCTP. I am curious how you think that uh, impacts Stargate's value proposition. Obviously, 
you know, with circle backing bridge, bridge movement from chain A to chain B, there's no custody risk or anything like that. Like you're going to be fine. So I guess I'm just curious, do you think that changes the value proposition at all? Yeah. I mean, I, I think a world where something like CCTP takes off at scale, it definitely changes the demand, right? Stargate ultimately solves an inventory problem, right? It's effectively, listen, I'm on chain A, whether I'm an application or a user, I've got $100,000 on chain A and I need it on chain B because I want to like do something in a contract there. Or I want to be in that ecosystem or whatever. And like Stargate just abstracts away the inventory problem. That's it. And so like, if you move to a world where like these um, third parties are basically doing that themselves, um, then that would change sort of the, so you'll never, you know, ETH assets, um, some, some like, Maybe, uh, yeah, I mean, ETH, a couple of others, like native assets, you're never, you're never going to change. You're always going to need to basically have that. Nobody's going to have an arbitrary like minter of ETH on other chains and everything. Um, there's a couple of problems with CTDP right now. Like actually for the pathways that it's enabled on, um, there's still more volume going over. Like e even though you can like, once we turn it on, you'll be able to do CCTP in Stargate over layers that are effectively the same in terms of message category, but it's like capped at a, at a pretty low number. Um, so there's like, there's, there's throughput restrictions. Um, there, there's like, like circle isn't providing it itself. They're, they're sort of all external parties would be. So like Stargate would be sort of an interface for doing this. Uh, but yeah, the, the world definitely changes some. Um, I would say I'm not totally convinced that it will be super used at scale within like a very fast time frame. Like it's only ETH. Uh, to Avalanche right now, and maybe they just turned on Arbitrum or are about to turn on Arbitrum. Uh, but those are like the only three pathways they have turned on. I think like very low volume usage overall at the moment. Um, and then I, I do think there are like, you know, it's a new system. It's going to stand the test of time security wise. Like ultimately, I think they're like, is that concern um, where... Uh, which is why the throughput limits are so low, right? Like ultimately, if you break that system, you can arbitrarily mint, like if they uncapped it, right? I could just, if I broke it, I could arbitrarily mint $500 billion in Ethereum and drain every single DEX, every single lending protocol, like every structure that exists, I could drain completely. And like, yes, the USDC will be recovered, but like every other asset is gone. It's like pure existential risk for the entire industry. And I, so like, I think it's good they're putting throughput limits and like, hopefully taking that super responsibly. Uh, but, but I, you know, there, there really is that risk that like, if that single attestation server is hacked, like catastrophically bad for the entire ecosystem um, in a way that's unrecoverable. Again, you'll recover the USDC. You will never recover all of the ETH and you know, every other asset that lives in those pools. That's actually something I hadn't considered. So I think that's a, a very fair point. Probably a good idea to have those caps on. Um, pivoting a little bit to Stargate V2, are you able to share any details around what's, uh, what's in store there? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, let me see what I can actually share. Um, Stargate V2 is a very, very, very significant upgrade. Uh, it, if done with Hydra, it will reduce emissions to basically zero. And gas costs will be cut by probably 80-ish percent at least, um, but possibly closer to like 99%. Um, so uh, without saying more than that, it will be by far, like it's already the most liquid pathways. It's already the cheapest pricing. It's more expensive on gas um, reasonably frequently. Like that will change there. In my opinion, there will be no 
reason to use another bridge. And then the economics of Stargate will change such that right now, last month, I think it did like $2 million in, uh, in overall uh, revenue generated and spent about a million to a million one in uh, emissions. That's already should be cut down to like 700, 800K now in emissions um, for this coming month. Um, so you're talking like $1.2 million net profit for the protocol. Um, emissions will go to, to near zero effectively. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, I don't know. I, again, we like, we try not to be too noisy about most of the dev stuff. I, I joke, like when we launched, right, we came out of stealth in like overnight, nobody had ever heard of us. We released our white paper, instantly jumped from stone zero to like 40,000 followers on Twitter, like 15,000 telegram and discord. Like we didn't put out like a single other tweet for like six months until we launched the protocol. Right. Like we're very prone to just kind of like go, going in and just like building stuff um so we're trying to be a little bit better about about talking in general but but yeah when, when it comes out it's it's gonna be awesome um yeah are you able to so today you know emissions are are going to incentivizing liquidity throughout the platform and on different channels and what about are you able to expand on like what about v2 is able to kind of like you know rein that into near zero yeah yeah it's it's so hydrus v2 will be like gas reduction v2 is like a change in, in Stargate itself makes more efficient, all that stuff. Hydra was this proposal that I put out. It hasn't passed. Nobody, nobody like people have been talking about it, but nobody's done anything about it. But Hydra was effectively like our thesis when we built Stargate was all wrapped assets suck. There's like this additional sort of risk that goes on to the end user that they're, you know, not used to in a user pro usual protocol. Infinite hacks happen from just like a bad, it's strictly worse than native assets. Um, and so our thesis was like, Everybody will want to use native assets and native assets will be kind of everywhere. They will be the dominant asset. Uh, since we launched like 15 months ago, I think like one new chain got native assets, right? They just like haven't moved at all. And yet wrapped assets have gotten hacked like 15 different times. Um, and so the thesis was like, listen, uh, we thought wrapped assets were going away. Native assets were going to be everywhere. That has proven not to be the case in that world why are we making everybody else use these kind of sketchy bridges? Like Stargate probably has uh, by far the most like consumer trust around a bridge. Um, it's the most used. All of that did $3 billion in transfer volume last month and the month before. And like, uh, so if, if anybody is going to do wrapped assets, like why doesn't Stargate just do it? Um, never, never had any security risk, everything. So in a world, you'll have Stargate, the native protocol that lives here and does everything how you would do now. And then let's say you're going to go to, I don't know, name a chain that doesn't have native assets. Uh, I guess Phantom now does. That was the first one that came to my mind. Yeah. What about, yeah, what about Moonbeam these days? Could be Moonbeam. Yeah, Moonbeam, sure. Um, so like, let's say Moonbeam. Um, now, basically, Stargate would, uh, through Hydra, have wrapped assets go to Moonbeam. So you would lock them up on Ethereum or wherever. Move it over to Moonbeam. You have, let's say, Stargate USDC that lives on Moonbeam. Uh, that right now, most wrapped asset bridges charge you about 10 bips uh, to, to, to go round trip. Uh, that would be entirely free in both directions. Uh, but the uh, price for it effectively would be we're going to take the underlying or Stargate's going to take the underlying asset that lives in the contract on Ethereum. And rather than have it just sit there, it's going to supply it to the Stargate pools. So now if you move 50 million over to Phantom, you'll have that 50 million instead of sitting in an idle contract will sit within the Stargate native pools, which means that's 50 million less dollars that Stargate, the protocol needs to incentivize. And it will always be there. If people come back from Moonbeam and want to take it out, you just remove it from Stargate exactly as it works. System stays solvent all that stuff, but there's basically no need for emissions after that. 
and and all of the ecosystems you're going to. Both the users get free bridging and the ecosystems get a uh, ideally wrapped asset that is much more reliable than than historically prevalent. How does the separation go to like, you know, if I'm a user or maybe even if I'm an LP in, you know, traditional Stargate today, the, the V1 model, how is my risk still being sharded away from getting involved with these wrapped assets? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the wrapped asset contract only has, um, only has so much LP, right? So it's just, uh, you know, again, let's take the Moonbeam example. $50 million goes from locked on Ethereum of USDC, goes over, and now you have $50 million of Stargate USDC on Moonbeam, 50 million of USDC that's sitting in that contract adds to Stargate and holds Stargate LP, um, right? So like S-Star USDC representing $50 million of the LP pool. That's the maximum amount that Stargate, the protocol sort of has um, and any sort of risk or anything, right? You can never redeem more than that. Stargate, the protocol isn't minting arbitrary. This system is actually lives entirely outside of Stargate, the core protocol. It's just an external wrapping contract that effectively participates in there, um, which is like net good for Stargate and then drives zero fees to the ecosystems. Okay, that makes a ton of sense because I know one of the core missions of this V2 model was really just to, to increase surface area of like where uh, Stargate and even Layer Zero could kind of like expand and reach into these corners. Maybe Stargate wasn't, but Layer Zero could could already be there, and uh, this kind of like opens the door to more you know fee accrual, right? Because that's kind of the idea here is is being a protocol and generating revenue. So I'm curious to get your ideas around how do you think about protocol value accrual? Like where should that end up going and how should that be used within the, the ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I, I think number one, like Stargate's mission from the beginning, as I see it in the community seems to have like catalyzed around it is ultimately like grow protocol and liquidity period. So Stargate has 90-ish million dollars of POL right now. It's growing by one to $2 million of POL a month. Um, once you hit about $250 million, um, Stargate, needs no emissions. So that's like another path to zero emissions. Like take away Hydra, take away anything. $250 million, you could surface every single thing that is in production now, do the same $3 billion a month you're doing in volume and have zero emissions. Stargate owns all of it. Stargate captures 100% of the fees of the uh, swap fee of sort of like everything around that. Um, so that is like a path. So I think the number one thing is like get to the critical mass of POL. Like the goal of Stargate should be drive emissions to zero. Right. If emissions, like if every dollar you give out emissions yields you less than a dollar back to the protocol, then your goal should be to remove those as quickly as humanly possible. And then you retain every single dollar of value that the protocol has. And the protocol owns that, right? It's not like any external party is owning it. It's within the protocol and it should be put to use in like the most productive manner. So if that is living in Stargate, that's what it should do. If it's something else, that's what it should do. Like Stargate as a whole goal should be to capture as much surface of fees as humanly possible and like in the most efficient manner as humanly possible. That's how I see it. Right on. Yeah. I think that that idea makes a ton of sense. And um, yeah, I, I guess, so that makes a lot of sense to me as Stargate, the protocol. But then when I think about like moving back to layer zero, um, is there fee capture for layer zero? Is that the intent or is that just not even like the direction that you kind of want to be pushing in? No, yeah, I mean, so right now there's like, you have, you have these participants within the ecosystem. So again, your chain links, your polyhedras, relayers, all these things, right? They, they charge whatever fees they want to charge. It's an open marketplace. Ultimately, you can imagine like that will get largely commoditized down, right? Um, to, to people will sort of this line of cost for security and people will kind of take the cheapest 
cost option where it gives them like their minimum bar of, of relative security. Um, and so uh, ev- all of those participants sort of have their own fee structures and whatever they charge. Um, Layer zero, the protocol right now doesn't charge anything, um, but the, you know, effectively that marketplace of participant in the middle is like a large part of layer zero. So um, you can imagine, you know, whatever, whatever that looks like in, in the future, I, I, I won't dive into it too much, but um, uh, Stargate is like net good for layer zero. All of these applications are like net good for layer zero because ultimately it's like surface of, of traffic, of volume of fees for these participants, which means more secure systems are going to come online. There's more incentive to be uh, within the layer zero ecosystem, all, all, all of these things. Interesting. Okay. Now you mentioned that uh, you want to get emissions for Stargate uh, down to as little as possible, honestly, zero, ideally, and increase protocol and liquidity. So a lot of people in my corner say, you know, bridges are a race to zero on fees. Would you argue the opposite? And is that kind of the strategy around protocol and liquidity? You know, if that's where all the liquidity is, then maybe you actually have some pricing power. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, ultimately, uh, bridges, depending on how they're but native bridges like Stargate is just a, a capital efficiency game, right? How much uh, liquidity can you have? You want to do a $10 million transfer on any pathway, unless you're going to wait like 24 hours or for a centralized entity or something like you're just not going to do it on any other system, but Stargate right now. So ultimately like there is a, there's a bunch of directional flow that you cannot do elsewhere. Um, and you just need liquidity. When you go to all of these, you know, as, as the number of chains expand, um, it might be easy for somebody else to reproduce on like a, a two chain pathway, right? So you'll see people go like, um, like ETH Arbitrum Optimism. And it's like, okay, like they can go ETH um, to Arbitrum Optimism for free. They just uh, wrap the native bridge and like, that's fine, easy. Of course, we have unlimited liquidity, like go that pathway. But then when you try to go Arbitrum to Optimism, it's like, oh, actually, like we have very little liquidity here. Like you can only do X. So people can solve like start part of the puzzle. It's very hard to be able to put it together at scale. Um, and I think liquidity is the premium. Ultimately, like LPs need a certain, like in order for them to have their capital sitting there, um, for an extended period of time for use, uh, for on-demand use, uh, they need to be, there's some hurdle rate, right? Right now, if you look at Stargate, if you look at most on-chain stuff, that hurdle rate's like four to somewhere between four and 6%, call it 5%, right? Um, so that's what LPs need to be able to stay stagnant. Um, end users are willing to pay some premium to basically have this service now, have the liquidity available when they need it, applications uh, who don't want, imagine building an application, Sushi Swap, MetaMask, whatever, and like randomly when you want to do a transfer over a pathway, it's like, yeah, like we'll get back to you in 24 hours. Like, don't worry, this will happen at some point. Good luck, right? And like you as application never know when your user is going to experience that. You never like, you know what I mean? Like there's there's a bunch of like friction points. So like applications and users will pay some premium for convenience and like real world examples of that are like how much I think Uniswap's UI itself still retains something like 30 to 40% of overall transaction volume, right? Like it's, it's basically always going to be cheaper to go use one inch or go use any like aggregator, do these things, right? Always. But like people use it because like they trust it. Um, you know, there's just like a convenience factor to always go back to the same URL that you have bookmarked and like, you're not worried about getting rugged. Like you're not approving new contracts. There's all this different stuff. So there is some premium, um, and some like utility that's added to, to applications and consumers to have that. Um, but when you already have that, like it's very, very difficult to bootstrap. And so you can compete on fees in a way that other people just can't. One thing we haven't talked about yet is uh, omni-chain fungible tokens, OFTs. Can you walk us through what these are and kind of how they work to improve crypto's UX? 
basically, um, and again, we're seeing like the negative repercussions of this two, two years after we were like writing about it, right? So um, really the inception of OFTs were, were this construct of like, take, yeah, multi-chain, right? So we just had the multi-chain hack and all this bad stuff happening around multi-chain. Like there was billions of dollars of assets that were moved over multi-chain. And we were just hearing these constant horror stories of like teams who negotiated with that team to bridge uh, their token across. Um, so you would move your token over multi-chain and you would get like any X, right? So any X is like your new token on the other side for any, they were called any swap at the time. Um, and then like randomly multi-chain, you know, would be like, now, now there are fees. Like you had negotiated zero fees. Now there's fees and like nobody can unwind without paying them fees. So you're like, there's some arbitrary gatekeeper where you're paying six, eight, 10, 12 bips to this external party. You have no control over security. So there's a bunch of times where it was like, there wasn't enough money in the contracts that were supposed to be because like on the back end, they had the ability to like move this liquidity around whenever they wanted for, for like native redemptions. Um, you know, if they got hacked, you were just 100% wrecked. So all these things are just like friction points. So like, why did, why are teams moving, um, their entire, like their single most valuable asset? over to some third party provider. And then at the same time, what you're getting on the other side was just this vanilla wrapped ERC20 token. So like if you were like Olympus DAO and you had like rebasting or you had like anything in there, like that was stripped out on the destination chains who like couldn't do the functionality that you needed. You couldn't have like, so it was a mess in terms of how the structure was. So the principle of the OFT was like, listen, Layer zero, again, is arbitrary contract invocation with a bytes array. Stargate is just pools of liquidity that sits there. And layer zero relays messages that Stargate constructs back and forth. So it's like somebody adds here, Stargate generates a message that says like a million dollars was added here, go to that chain and tell it. Layer zero moves that message. Stargate on the other side interprets it and like releases a million dollars. So add, release, and like uh, layer zero just moves the data. So when you think about that same construct, OFT is just a contract that the... And um, end creator owns, they own the contract, they own the functionality, they own what's allowed to go across. You want to add rate limits, no problem. You want to add pre-crime, no problem. It like, doesn't matter. You can do anything that you can do on-chain within that contract and layer zero moves the messages. So when you talk about moving message, moving your uh, asset around, like instead of using any swap or whatever third-party provider, like burn the asset here, mint the asset there. You've constructed the message. You have this secure messaging pathway between there do something in this contract, do something in that contract. You can guarantee solvency of the entire system. There's zero fees. And so now when you think about what does that buy you? And so like stable coins, like Circle CCTP is effectively this just in a totally centralized manner, ultimately. It's their attestation server that sits there. They said anybody can come and request this API attestation and move the data around. So they kind of took an abstracted sense where like, Anybody can, so any messaging layer can do it. We just want to like sign the message. Um, but effectively, when you think about an OFT, one of the biggest benefits is like, yeah, uh, rebalancing. Like again, inventory is like a massive problem, right? If I'm, um, you know, maybe Avalanche only had like five, you know, $500 million of like USDC minted over the Avalanche bridge at some point. And now there's some new farm that launches on Avalanche. Like DeFi summer's happening. Avalanche is super in demand. Like, in order for people to jump from Solana or Phantom or whatever other chain to Avalanche to move that USDC over, even though it exists in circulation, uh, ended up being like, you know, you might wait 45 minutes and you might pay like 
10 to 15 bips to, to get over there into that route, which is insane. Um, and so now with OFT, you have the ability to move near unlimited amounts of money within the contract for literally just the cost of gas. Like you want to move $100 from Solana to Avalanche, like it's going to cost you 11 cents, to move like $100 million, right? Like the contract can just make the fee zero strictly the price of gas. And when you can do that, like think about what that does for capital efficiency. Now, if I can, now if moving my BTCB, you know, my, my Bitcoin synthetic, my, you, my stable coins, et cetera, is effectively free. Now I can ARB spreads to like subsent, right? Now you can ARB pairs across all these chains to like subsent spread. So like all DEX pairs become incredibly capital efficient. All this stuff becomes like incredibly capital efficient because the friction that people have been paying this tax, the consumer to move the asset is driven to near zero. And then the other thing are teams like, um, if you were already paying, six, eight, 10, 12 bips to an external service provider, and you're like a decentralized stable coin, you can now own it in the contract and you can charge, cut it in half, charge three bips and you yourself get it. And it's a way to monetize where like, now you own a large percentage of every fee that's out, you know, it's not only half price for the consumer, but you're not paying it to any external provider. You can own it yourself. There's a surface of like, if you want to have fees, at least it goes to you, the project, not to some random third party. Um, and so like, yeah, that, like, that is the construct of OFT. It's just, just, just a construct, uh, a contract structure that lives on top of layer zero, but it is meant to turn the control of these assets back over to the end creator rather than delegating them out to third parties, which again has ended largely terribly in most cases. So one of the users of this has been uh, Abracadabra with this decentralized stablecoin MIM. And they, I think they just launched uh, the OFT in early June, so a little over a month ago now. Already seen over 87 million uh, MIM transferred across a series of different chains, mostly to and from Arbitrum, which is which is pretty interesting, right? Because if you're Abracadabra, you want your decentralized stablecoin everywhere. Arbitrum's kind of been becoming increasingly known as this DeFi hub uh, as far as Ethereum L2s go. And now they kind of have this ability to just get to and from that that uh, that chain. So that's pretty interesting. But I find it more interesting about the fees that you mentioned, right? Is uh, I'm, I'm I feel like I need to go check this contract and, and see if Abracadabra is kind of capitalizing on this. So I'm curious if you if you know that one specifically. Um, but I I think I think they're charging zero fee. I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think they went with zero because I think they. Uh, you know, their structure, they make money when like MIM is, is minted effectively. So they already have this, this monetization structure, um, but, but it's definitely a, a revenue source for sure if, if they want it to be. So what does the security model look like specifically in, in this context, right? So does, did they operate a relayer in this, in this context? So, so they could, right? So in this case, um, it's just like anything else on layer zero. You effectively, you choose your validators effectively. So let's say you're going to do Chainlink and Polyhedron, Chainlink, the ZK Light client, and like the layer zero relay. Let's say you're going to stack the, the three of those effectively. And like, that's going to be your security structure. Um, fine, no problem. You can stack all three. In Circle's case, like if they wanted CCTP to basically, you know, effectively act as an Oracle within layer zero, they could do exactly what they're doing within layer zero uh, already. Right. And so like now you instead you just have like the relayer like grabbing that testation, but they could do that themselves inside. Um, so it really is always like with everything with layer zero, it's, it's always application owned. Like at the end of the day, like completely modular, they can do whatever they want. A lot of applications like don't want to have to run their own, but they're totally fine being like, listen, like Polyhedra's ZK Lite client and like Chainlink combined, like that's enough security for me. I'm fine with that. But for applications where it's not when you are dealing with tens of billions, whatever it is, then you have the ability to run one. And the nice part is like, again, it's it's 
you're effectively operating one with veto rights. So rather than delegating 100% of your security away, you're now saying, I'm still going to keep this external security and I will make sure that I sign every message that I'm included in every one such that I have veto rights. If you guys lie and are malicious, I get to veto it. But if I get hacked, like you guys are a fallback to me as well. Um, so like now the assumption to be able to like hack the team, take their private keys and simultaneously like break the ZK Lite client and hack Chainlink all collectively, like the, the hurdle becomes very, very high. So what's the risk here? Why isn't everyone launching OFTs? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, ultimately, I think it's just time. I think, you know, PancakeSwap, um, multi-billion dollar token, moved to OFT. Trader Joe, Joe token, is an OFT. Avalanche's BTCB is an OFT. Abercadabra's MIM is an OFT, right? So I actually think, like, we're very, very happy with OFT adoption so far. I think we're going to see a bunch of other uh, very, very large projects coming out soon, um, like some of the largest in the world. And so I think we will continue to see this. Um, it just takes time. Everything takes time. Uh, again, I like I look at contract adoption on layer zero and it's just like as steady state growth up as you could ever hope for. Just this really continual churn. And it's like, I know, I don't know, hundreds of projects that are building right now that just like haven't gone to market. Last, when we were at 5,500 contracts on test on mainnet, there were 35,000 contracts on testnet. So that's like the type of overhang that is that is then going to be coming to mainnet. Um, so like, it just takes time. We're in no rush. Uh, we're going to keep building the best stuff we can build and like, it'll, it'll come. You mentioned btc.b. Are you able to kind of elaborate how that works? Because I, I just feel like the, the Bitcoin bridging design space is always kind of left a lot to be desired for me. Yeah, yeah. So Avalanche made this structure uh, where they had their own bridge, their own permissionless bridge to say you can take Bitcoin from the Bitcoin network to Avalanche and back, right? You can do this permissionlessly. And so you would do it, you would mint this BTCB asset in Avalanche, but it just lived in Avalanche. Um, and so what they did is they went and, and made BTCB an OFT. And so now, great, you have your, your you take it from Bitcoin to Avalanche. Now you can take it from Avalanche to anywhere, to all 35 chains, right? So now you can have BTCB on Aptos, on Phantom, on you know any of these other chains as a, as a Bitcoin derivative. And anybody who wants to go back uh, effectively just goes back to Avalanche and out to the Bitcoin network. Okay, I see. So you're still trusting though Avalanche as the kind of like bridge custodian? So as the layer of moving from Bitcoin to Avalanche and back is, is you know, their own structure. Mm -hmm. So their okay. core bridge, like that's something, that's a product that had already been developed. And then they took the end result of that and made it an OFT to move it everywhere. So yes, you have this, this two-part component where like, to and from Bitcoin still is that uh, system that they've built. And then from Avalanche everywhere is, is the OFT. Okay. Interesting. Sounds somewhat similar to WBTC in a way. Um, yeah. But yeah. Cool. Well, that, this has been an awesome conversation. I learned a ton. I feel like I was just kind of a fly on the wall, but I'm glad I got to see it firsthand. Dan, did you have any more questions before I pass it over to Brian to share more about where people can find them? Yeah, Brian, I got one more for you. I want to hear something like what is uh, what is something that you've been thinking about as a really interesting idea that would be perfect to be built on layer zero, but just hasn't happened yet? All right. So I have like a real answer or two that I'm not going to give you because you'll, ju you'll just see them in production when they're ready. Um, so so there's there are some really, really cool things coming um, really like, in my opinion, as as transformative 
for this side of the space as anything, even even including our launch as anything we've ever done. Um, so I'm very excited about what we've been working on. Uh, the easy answer that I've given a bunch historically is like the one thing I thought for sure would happen that hasn't yet um, is is lending and borrowing uh, in a in a manner that you can collateralize anywhere and borrow anywhere because I saw that as disrupting kind of like tens of billions of dollars of wrapped assets. Like I think ninety five percent of use cases just want to like collateralize native or stable and borrow native and stable. Like that that is the super majority. I'm on Solana. I'm on Ethereum. I want to go to Solana. I might want to collateralize my ETH and borrow Sol because I don't want to take the tax hit. I don't want to lose like ETH exposure, but I want to do something in the Sol ecosystem. Um, or I want to like collateralize Sol and like borrow stable in another ecosystem, like just native in wrapped, uh, sorry, native and stable covers like almost everything, 95% of all wrapped assets in existence. Uh, and so I thought there would, I thought those structures would come to market faster. Um, now, Radiance started sort of the, or the earliest parts of this of like, you can move and you can have a deposit anywhere and you have lend and borrow where you can bring things anywhere. There's, there's um, Sedro and a couple others are coming out where they're again, working closer and closer to this structure. Um, but that is the, that and the stable coin OFTs were like the two things that was like, this just has to happen. Like the world is too inefficient as is. Somebody will definitely be doing this. Um, and it's been uh, slower than originally uh, expected. But like you said, um, you know, MIM, MIM has just come. And uh, yeah, we see a bunch of lending protocols working on it as well. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to, to find out more about the real answer at some point soon then. <laughs> but thanks again, Brian. Uh, can you just yeah, leave, leave some with the audience to let them know where you can hear more from you and learn more about Layer Zero and Stargate as well? Awesome. Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm, anybody who knows me knows I'm, I'm very, very active on Twitter, probably too active. But uh, you can find me at Primordial AA on Twitter. Uh, layer zero is layer zero underscore labs and stargate is uh stargate finance but uh yeah hit, hit me up i'll be around too active aren't we all so it's the devil's juice for us but thanks thanks again brian cheers man cheers.